So we're in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going half a chapter a week, and we're going to end right before Christmas. And as I said, we're in the second half now of Mark chapter 8. This is a challenging text, friends. Jesus puts very, very hard demands and hard words on his followers and disciples. Offensive words if you're not ready for them. He speaks of dying to self in such a way that you find life. And so we're going to jump in and we're going to try to make as many applications and unearth as many insights as we can in a short amount of time. So I'm going to start by reading verses 22 to 26 and then we'll go through it. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. The him there is Jesus And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. What a strange text. And so if you remember, at the end of chapter 7, we had the enabling a deaf man to hear. And that deaf man was also unable to speak. And so Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and he spits on his, on his tongue and, and the man's ears are opened and he can hear and his tongue is loosed and he can speak. It's amazing. And you remember last week that we encountered the ignorance of the disciples, not understanding who Jesus really is. In fact, if you remember, when Jesus calms the storm in an earlier chapter of Mark, they asked the question, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And that question is continually being answered by Jesus, chapter after chapter, miracle after miracle, demon exorcism after demon exorcism. Jesus is showing himself to not only the crowds, not only to the people he's healing, and not only to the the people who have the demons that are having their demons released, but he is showing his disciples over and over. He's answering the question, who is Jesus Christ? And here again, this is an opportunity, friends, for Jesus to open the eyes of the disciples. And so here we have an encounter in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Most of Jesus' ministry surrounded the Sea of Galilee. So here's the sea. Imagine it like the United States, and you got Maine up here. That's like Bethsaida in the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is like opposite in the northwest, if you will. And so they're in Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. Now, this is remarkable. Go through Mark and look. Every miracle, every person that he interacts with, he touches them. There's a physical interaction of Jesus with the people in need. You might think it's gross that Jesus took his fingers and put them in the man's ears. You're like, that's disgusting, man. Or, or, or even worse, he spits and then puts the spit on the man's tongue. But this is the Lord of glory who created the spit, who created the tongue, who created the ears. And he's not standing back as if, hey, I don't want to get any of that on me. 
you unclean sinner. Rather, he comes so close and so intimate to these hurting people every time. And so at this time, look, he, he is being begged, Jesus, touch this man. We know that your touch can help. You remember earlier in Mark, uh, the woman with the issue of blood, she thought to herself, if I only touch the hem of his garment, I shall be healed. Touch. And so there's this element of touch that Jesus uh, has happening almost in every encounter. Either people are trying to touch him, and he's being crushed by the crowd, or he lays his hands on others and touches them. And there's always power that goes out of him to bless other people, whether people are touching him or he is touching others. And so here, he does something. Look at verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand. Now remember, he's blind, but he can hear. So the friends, he hears the interaction with Jesus. He hears the friends, oh, please, would you, would you touch our friend? He's blind. He, he can't see. And so Jesus grabs the man's hand, and he leads him away from the crowd so that it's not this spectacle. He's caring for the man in a very intimate and private way. And I just have to say here that, friends, this is available for you. This is available for you. Did you know that you can meet with God in such a way where Jesus shows up? Now, one time I was saying these things in a sermon, and then afterward, a young man came up to me and said, like, he's never shown up. I've never heard his voice. And I was saying, well, that's not exactly what I meant. And he, he got so disappointed. He was like, oh. And, and the idea is that Jesus, by the Spirit, can show up to you in such a way where you can get a sense of his presence. And if you think this is a little too charismatic, remember what Paul prayed at the end of Ephesians 3 that you might know his love that surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? That means he shows up in a real way that you experience his love. You experience his nearness. And Paul prays this for the Ephesians. I pray that you know his love that surpasses knowledge. This is what Romans 8 speaks of when we learn that the Holy Spirit confirms with our spirit that we are God's. God owns us, and we have God as our God and Father. This can happen to you, friends, and sometimes you're not looking for it, and sometimes you actually need to seek it. You need to, in a sense, go away, and maybe going away is kind of you just leaving the chaos of your own home for a little bit. And by that, I don't mean go on vacation, which that would be nice too. I mean like go for a walk. Like go somewhere where you're undistracted. Leave your phone at home, please. It's really hard for Jesus to show up when your phone's going bling, bling. And you're like, I'm trying to find Jesus here. And it's ringing and ringing. and My encouragement is turn the phone off for 20 minutes. Trust me, you won't die. You won't die, and others won't die if you turn your phone off. You might think they will, but, but they won't. You'll be okay, and they'll be okay. And my encouragement is take at least a half hour this week and seek the Lord. What does James tell us? Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee. Friends, just try it. Draw, and don't give up if he doesn't show up in a way that you're like, that was not tangible. Nothing happened. Keep seeking the Lord. Pray Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that you would know his love that surpasses knowledge. And so Jesus here, verse 23, takes the blind man by the hand and leads him out of the village. 
And when he had spit on his eyes, not, that's not disrespect. It's not like, who do you think you are? And just hawkers on his eyes. No, this is the Lord of glory who is the great physician. And so this spitting on the eyes is also a personal touch. And it's the healing saliva of Jesus that is used as a means to heal this man. Now, Jesus didn't have to spit on his eyes. Jesus heals people from long distances. He, he doesn't need to touch anyone. He can speak the word and the, the sight can happen. Just like he told the man who was paralytic, get up, take up your mat and go home. No touching necessary. And the man stands up and he takes his mat and he goes. But this is Jesus being so intimate with this man. And don't think of it in, in a COVID sense. Like, we're so conscious of germs right now. And you're like, Jesus, I hope you drank some, some hand sanitizer before you spit on his eyes. That, don't think like that. We're a little overcautious in this season. This is Jesus loving this man in an intimate way by spitting on his eyes. It's like healing medicine, the saliva of Jesus. And he, and he massages the saliva into his eyes. I know it's, it sounds gross in our context, but you've got to remember who is doing this. Okay, who is doing this? And then he lays his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? Do you see anything? Now, this is remarkable, the answer. He looked up, so the man must have been looking down when Jesus laid his hand, and he looks up, and he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. They look like ants. It's Treebeard. No, no Lord of the Rings fans in here. Okay, one person. One person got the Lord of the Rings joke. He sees men, but they look like trunks, but they're moving around. Now, now, what does this say? This says that the man must have known what trees look like, which then has to mean what? That he was not born blind. How would he know what a tree looks like? So something must have happened to this man that he became blind. Perhaps it was a construction accident. Perhaps it was de degenerative uh, eye nerves. We don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was in the process of being healed. Now we have to note this. Never in the gospel of Mark did a healing need two stages. No, it's always instantaneous when Jesus says the word, puts his hands on the person, speaks, the healing happens. But this miracle happens in two stages, and it's very purposeful. Then, verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, second time, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. No more trees walking. The ants became actual people. And now he's like, I see clearly everything. This is amazing. Now, if you can imagine being this man, your sight is restored. Like, you're not thinking about how gross it was that this rabbi named Jesus put spit on your eye. You are ecstatically thankful and gracious. And you don't care by what means. You are just praising the Lord that you are healed, and you are now seeing. And Jesus does what he always does when he heals someone at this stage. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. I don't want a spectacle. I don't want the crowds mobbing me. I don't want the religious leaders to mob me and, and seek to trap me again. Let's keep this shh on the low. 
the messianic secret. And Jesus is doing this so that he can go about his work without being mobbed by the crowds. He doesn't yet want people to know he's the Messiah. And you might say, that's very strange. I thought that we were supposed to take what was said in secret and then announce it from the rooftops. And you'd be right if you were thinking that. But for the disciples and for those being healed and those having demons cast out, it's not the time yet. Why? Why? Do you know why? Because Jesus has, had not accomplished his mission yet. And the disciples did not yet understand who he was. And so this little episode right here, happening in two stages, is a parable for the disciples' ignorance. And so let's look at that in the very next portion, verse 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me, And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. There it is again, don't tell anyone. Now in another account in Matthew, it's a little more detailed. And so what Peter says is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you didn't just dawn upon this revelation yourself. You have been given the gift of God supernaturally to understand who I am, who I am. Now, we've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Notice what Jesus said. Who do people say that I am? In the other account, it's who do people say that the Son of Man is, the Son of Man? And, and the idea is that the Son of Man is this messianic figure from Daniel 7 who inherits the nations, who rules a kingdom that will never end. And the Jewish people at this time were very familiar with that kind of Messiah, a Messiah that would be a political ruler that would take over and establish the kingdom, kick out the Romans, kick out the oppressors, and and rule and reign like David and Solomon. In fact, didn't Jesus himself say, one greater than Solomon is here? And so this announcement, you're the Messiah, all of that messianic ideas of the first century was full of political takeover and kingly rule and military might and monetary majesty. That's what filled up the idea of Messiah. And so, Peter, you got it. I am the Messiah, but don't tell anyone yet. Why? Why, Jesus? Because you're going to tell people the wrong ideas about who I am because you don't yet understand Peter you don't yet understand disciples and so just like the blind man now get this Mark was very intentional about putting the blind man prior to this because Peter's eyes are being opened and the disciples eyes are being opened here but yet wait till we get to the next text they don't quite see yet they see Jesus like a tree walking but they don't see him clearly Watch this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, Jesus is not speaking in parables. Jesus is not speaking in metaphor. He is speaking plainly and clearly. Yes, Peter, I am the Messiah, and you did not get that by your own revelation. God revealed that to you, but you need to know that I am the Messiah of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who will bear the transgressions of the people, the one for for whom it will be the Lord's will to crush him. Look how clearly Jesus speaks. The Son of Man, that's me, Daniel 7, you got it right, I am the Messiah, but this Messiah is not ready to have the nations as his inheritance, and he's not yet ready to come into a kingdom that will never end. Yes, the government will be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end, but not yet, Peter, not yet, disciples. You see, but you don't quite see clearly. I look like a tree walking to you. And so now I'm going to reveal to you, just like the second stage of healing for the blind man, now I'm going to help you see clearly. Look, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Those three groups, elders of the Jews, the chief priests and the scribes make up the ruling body of uh, the Jewish people at at this day. It was the Sanhedrin. It was the high court. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to be tried before the power structure of your day, and I'm going to be found guilty by them. I'm going to suffer many things, and I'm going to die. This is the first clear declaration of Jesus in this gospel, except for the introduction in chapter 1, where Jesus is revealed as the Messiah and talks clearly about his death to the disciples. And what is happening is he is helping them to see more clearly who he actually is. I'm a suffering Messiah, not the one who's coming with the sword out of his mouth and with a rod of iron to strike the nations and demand obedience. I'm not yet coming on the white horse, and I'm not yet coming to soak the earth with blood. That's what you think. And so when Peter says, you're the Messiah, that's all in their thinking. And he's like, no, 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 you don't see clearly yet, guys. And therefore, don't go out and talk about me like that. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, keep it quiet because you guys don't yet understand. You don't yet see. And so chapter 8, believe it or not, this portion is the very center of the gospel of Mark. There's 16 chapters. We're about at the end of the eighth, so it's right in the middle. And at this point forward, Jesus is going to now focus on the disciples and help them to see who he actually is. And then they will go out and plant the capital C church after the resurrection and ascension. And so from this point forward in Mark, Jesus is going to be opening the eyes of the blind disciples. You remember earlier in Mark, they're like, leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod, it's because we have no bread. And he just berates them with questions. Do you not see? Are you still blind? Don't you have understanding yet? And he just goes off on them. No, they're blind. No, they're deaf. But Jesus The great physician is going to heal their deafness, he's going to heal their blindness, and he's going to unstop their tongues so that they can speak clearly about him after the resurrection and after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Do you see all the connections here? All right, so let's continue. He's going to now open their eyes further. And he said this plainly. Now we can see clearly. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this is in a sense comical. Okay, so here's the Lord of glory, the author of what is right and wrong, the, the one who said, I am the truth. The one who is truth embodied as a person, and here, a sinful human being is going to take him aside and rebuke him. No, 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 Lord. No, 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 Lord. <laughs> but turning and seeing his disciples, so Jesus turns and he sees his disciples, he rebukes Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Wow. So in one scene, Peter gets special revelation from God the Father. Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then in the same instance, the next scene, he is speaking like Satan. Because this is the way Satan wants Jesus to obey, right? Because you remember the temptations. Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain and says, throw yourself off and he will send his angels concerning you so that you won't dash your foot against the stone. And, and eventually after the temptation, temptation, if you will just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. You're the Messiah, aren't you? Aren't you the son of God? If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Serve yourself, didn't you come to show yourself to the people? Why are you hungry? Why are you being disrespected? Why are you acting this lowly? Why are you letting the power structures uh, oppose you? Ascend, Jesus. And he's tempting him. He's trying to, Satan's trying to get him to go his way and not God's way. And this is what's happening again. It's not that Satan possessed, it's not that God possessed Peter in one moment and then Satan is possessing Peter in the next moment. No, it's that Peter's aims here are the same aims as Satan. He's trying to divert Jesus from his mission. That's what's happening. And so Jesus' mission is what he just said. The Son of Man is going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. Jesus says, Peter, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. No, no you're going to ascend to power, and we're going to rise with you. In fact, I thought I was going to be vice president, Jesus. I mean, just like you multiplied the loaves and the fish for the 5,000 men and then, and then the 4,000, I thought we were going to bring Israel up out of their lowly state. And so you could hear him just rebuking Jesus. No, what are you talking about? And Jesus turns around and he hears Peter arguing with him. He sees his disciples and he thinks, oh my gosh, they're all on the same plane and they're still not seeing. Even though I just told them plainly, they still don't get it. And so he rebukes Peter publicly. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because you're not setting your mind on the things of God. God's mission for me from the very beginning was that I would save my people from their sin. You, Peter. You, Andrew. You, James. You, John. You, Bartholomew. And so on. It's my mission to save you and me as the Messiah. Yes, I'm the anointed one. Yes, I'm the son of man. But if I don't get rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and if I don't get hung on the cross and get buried and rise again on the third day, you're stuck in your sins. And you're headed to hell. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And then he speaks some hard words to his disciples and by extension us. 
So now he is going to put some hard demands on his followers. So we're, we're almost done, okay? This is going to be a shorter message on purpose, um, but here it goes. Mark 8, 34 to 38. Listen close, everyone, because if you would say, I am a disciple of Jesus, this text is for you. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So remember, he takes the blind man away, out of the village. Then the disciples, he explains to them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. And then he gathers the crowd and the disciples, and he then speaks to everyone. So imagine a crowd in front of Jesus, and he speaks this word to them. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, you want to follow me as a disciple? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you need to do something. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow me. Now listen, for us, we wear crosses as jewelry. We have crosses hanging on our home. All church buildings in some capacity have crosses connected to them. They're so normal for us, this statement loses its power. But for these people, this was not a Christian symbol yet. What this was, was a torturous instrument of death, execution, and shame. And Jesus says, if you want to follow after me, be prepared to suffer shame and bloody torture. And you could just imagine the, the marketing plan of the disciples just crashing. You can't tell people that. They're all going to leave. Like, Jesus, we're trying to, to build a kingdom here. We're trying to expand. We're trying to raise Israel up. What are you talking about? If someone wants to come after you, they're going to have to die. Now, in those days, criminals who were condemned to death by cross, they had to carry the cross beam on their back to the place of execution. And as they went through the streets, people would heckle them and spit on them and sometimes assault them. And so they knew what Jesus was saying. Take up your cross and follow me. He means die to yourself and be willing literally physically to die if necessary. And how do you know that's exactly what he's saying? Because of verse 33. Look, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, of her, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. We know that this means there will be great temptation, whether in the first century or in the 21st century, to pretend like we're not disciples, to pretend like we're not connected to Jesus, because those people are weird. Those people are a bit strange. Those people are not cool. They're not popular. In fact, they're bigoted and hateful and spiteful and dangerous, and increasingly so. Because we are on the narrow path. Didn't Jesus say, 
Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And here he says, if you want to come after me, listen, you're going to have to die to yourself. And quite possibly, for them, for them who heard this, it was a reality. You may actually have to die for me. And if you deny me before men, before adulterous and sinful and idolatrous people, then guess what's going to happen to you? Now, we have grace as Christians, right? So Peter, we know, did deny the Lord. In fact, he, he was prophesied to do so. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Jesus looks at Peter, and they, they meet after that third denial. And yet, in grace, Jesus restores Peter in John chapter 21. And so, there's grace for us. Uh, what I'm not saying is, if you've failed here, you should just walk away from the faith altogether. Like, go live like a pagan. Go party it up. No. We have opportunity to repent and become brave by fearing the Lord more than man. By fearing the Lord more than having a, a reputation that we want to keep. We can deny ourselves, deny the image of popularity. Listen, if you truly live out your Christian faith, you are not going to be popular. You are not going to be cool. In fact, it's coming faster than we like. You are going to be called a bigoted hater, especially if you keep to a biblical sex ethic. You will be labeled, if not within the next five years, certainly I think within the next 10, unless something radical happens, you will be labeled a dangerous person as a Christian because of your sexual ethic if it stays biblical and doesn't go with the culture. It's already happening. And what we must not do is we must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must not be ashamed of Jesus. We must not be ashamed of his claims. We must not be ashamed to say, no, I am a follower of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we arrogantly and pridefully and self-righteously look down on those who are not disciples of Jesus. No, rather we lovingly serve and humbly reach out and invite them to come in. But in this sense, Jesus is saying, look, you have to be willing to die to yourself. Die to your sin if you want to be my disciple. You don't get, listen, here's what he's doing. He's saying, you don't get to add me to your life in hopes that I'll give you a better life. That's not how this relationship works. No, rather, you come to me and you really want to follow me, you might get to die. But think about this, friends. I know this is not pop Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. Jesus himself said, if you want to follow me, it's serious and it's radical to the point where it might demand your life. And in certain cultures where Christianity is not accepted, your family rejects you and you might be hunted and put to death and in prison. Now, praise God, we're not there yet. Yet. And I'm not, I'm not one of those ones who prays for persecution. I'm not one of those people. I know there's, there's hardcore types who are like, bring it on. I want to go underground. No, I'm not that type of person. I'm thankful I get to preach without fear of authorities breaking in and handcuffing me and taking me away. But, friends, what about your living sacrificeness? Sometimes it's easier to say, yes, kill me. 
I'm going to die for Jesus. What about living for him? What about denying yourself for the sake of others? What about laying down your temptations instead of giving in every time and just saying, God will forgive me. I'm, I'm okay. I mean, Chris said a thousand times, his grace is a deep well. It has no bottom. Now that's true, but in the same sense, didn't Paul say in Romans, shall we sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? God forbid by no means. No, we deny ourselves, we take up the cross, we die to our own mission. We don't add Jesus as an accessory. He's not like an energy drink that gives you the power to get through the day. Rather, he is your whole life. He defines you. He is the Lord. He's not like a purse to accessorize you. Brothers, he's, he's not like uh, your, your, your nice new sunglasses or your matching shoes. He doesn't add to your freshness. No, rather, you die and you rise new and you're united to him and now he is your everything. This is Christianity. And I understand this is not popular, but I imagine that Peter and the disciples were saying, Jesus, you got to stop this radical talk here. You got to stop this. Everyone's going to leave. No one's going to want to follow you if you talk like this. But friends, this is biblical Christianity. If we lived out faith like this, we would be called extremists and fundamentalists. But meanwhile, this is just simply biblical Christianity. We're so small in terms of discipleship. We're, we're so infantile in our faith that this sounds radical. And so we hear this and we're like, this isn't comfortable Christianity that I'm used to. I didn't come here for this. I didn't come here to feel bad. I didn't come here to, to, for you to tell me I need to die to myself and lay down my sin and be willing to die for Christ. I came here because my life sucks and I need Jesus to make it better. Friends, that's not discipleship. Jesus doesn't come to enhance you. He's not like a personal trainer. Now, on the other hand, after having said that, when Jesus comes into your life, you begin to get healthy. The sin that so easily entangles you and the sin that is killing you and destroying you and promising you life, once you get released from your patterns of sin, your life actually does begin to improve. But see, here's the paradox. The paradox is right here in verse 35. Whoever would save his life, that's you keeping it your way. I want to have it my way. I want the way I want to live. I don't want the way Jesus wants me to live. I don't want to lay down my preferences and my personal wants and needs and desires. I don't want to do that. And Jesus says, look, if you want to keep your life like that, you're going to lose it. But paradoxically, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels in service of the good news and the expansion of the kingdom, you'll save your life. Your life will actually be saved and you'll find real life and life to the full when you finally lay everything down and come to Jesus and say, all right, I'm, I'm all in. I'm fully in. I'm not playing around. I'm not on the fence anymore. I'm not keeping a whole closet full of darkness and saying, Jesus, you don't get to go in there. I don't, I don't want to submit this part of my life or this part of my life or certainly not my bank account and certainly not my sexual encounters and certainly not my, my website viewage. I, I don't want to submit these things. I certainly don't want to submit my schedule to you and I don't want to love my enemies. Jesus, 
How dare you demand that of me? Yet Jesus says, look, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who malign you and speak all kind of evil against you. If you don't forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. Meaning that if you don't understand the depths of forgiveness that you have received, you won't be able to forgive other people. Because the radical forgiveness that was given to you is not realized yet. Does that make sense? And so this call for what seems like radical Christianity, listen, friends, to Jesus is just Christianity. Lose your life for my sake and for the kingdom's expansion through the gospel, and you're going to find life. But I don't want to die. All right, save it. Keep it for yourself. But guess what? Paradoxically, you're actually going to lose it. You're going to lose it. And so for so many, we wrestle with the claims of Jesus and the demands of Jesus. But there are some of us in this very room who know we've laid it down. We've said, Jesus, no more me. And now it's your turn to rule and reign. And all of a sudden, things did get brighter. They did get brighter. Jesus didn't come and accessorize and enhance our life. No, he came over and became our life. Christ, who is your life. When he appears, you will appear with him. Friends, he, okay, I'm getting a little exercised, and I said this would be a short sermon, and, and I'm using all my time. Okay. Let me switch to another account of this and then quickly finish because I only have seven minutes left. Okay. So this is the Luke account of the same demands, and it's enhanced a bit. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Like, come on, Jesus, that is not, that is not good advertising right there for your kingdom and you. You got to stop talking like this. And wait a minute, didn't you say that I have to love my neighbor as myself? And isn't my wife and my children and my neighbors my closest neighbors? And what Jesus is saying here in a paradoxical way is, whoever comes in between your relationship with him, you got to cut that off. There are some people who will not have you if you have Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to make a choice. Now, now, if you want to divorce your husband or wife, first you come talk to me, okay? We need to nuance that. Don't take what I just said and be like, it's done, signing papers tonight. They're gone. Let's talk about it first. Let's see if we could do some reconciliation. Let's see if we could do some counseling first, right? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring, now, now this is beautiful, okay? Here's an illustration. It's a building illustration and it's a war illustration, but he's speaking of your life, you, your life. Count the cost of being a follower of me. Count the cost of being my disciple. Whoever, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to conquer another king in war, 
will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes to him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All, Jesus? All. This is the pearl of great price parable, right? This is, this is you walking through a field and you stumble across something in the ground and you, you dust it off and you're like, what is that, a chest? And so you start digging around and you pull out this giant chest and you flip it open and it's full of gold coins and diamonds and precious stones and you're like, oh, and you close it and you bury that back up and then you go and you find out who owns the field and you're like, hey, I want to buy that field. And Jesus said, this is what the kingdom is like. You see Jesus and his claims and his offers of eternal life and life now to the full in his presence, and you see your life as trash enough to liquidate everything. Because what I left out in the parables is enjoy the man who found the treasure went and sold everything he had to buy the field. And so liquidating your life renouncing all that you have and saying, it's all yours, Jesus, even my very breath. If you don't do it, you can't be my disciple. And so, friends, let's, let's finish with this. We got three minutes left, and we're done. Where are you at with Christ tonight? Where are you at? Do you have a relationship with him for real? Or is this an outward show of some kind of religious activity and hopes that God will accept me? What is this to you? Is this some kind of self-help, Jesus, make me better, help my goals to be realized, help me to accomplish great things kind of relationship? Or is this you coming to God and saying, I lay all of me down and I receive all of you. My life is yours. Now you, you get to rule. What kind of relationship with Jesus do you have? And you see, what's going on here in Mark is he is opening the eyes of the disciples because they think Jesus is going to help them ascend to power and prosperity and rule, reign, and respect. Meanwhile, Jesus is like, look, the opposite is going to happen. No, I'm going to die, and you're going to die. And if you're not willing to come with me in death, you cannot be my disciples. And so, friends, I understand that this is weighty, and I understand that these are hard words, but the Lord Jesus is loving us with these words. He's saying, look, you will find life if you will lay yourself down, if you will put away your self-centeredness, if you will put away your aims and goals and ambitions that are simply you, 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 you. And rather, you will turn and fix your gaze on me and say, no, this, this life is all about you. You created me for your glory, and now I want to live in light of what you have done for me. What has he done? He has borne the cross for our sins. He has released us of an unpayable debt, a sin debt that would have taken eternity to pay off in hell under the just punishment of God. And so is it any wonder that Romans 12, 1 says, listen, in light of what Jesus has done for us, should we not offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? holy and pleasing unto him. Isn't this just reasonable and logical? 
If he gave up everything for you, shouldn't we then in response and thankfulness give up everything for him? And the amazing paradox of this text is when we finally come and submit to him, and and you can do this in prayer tonight, friends. You could do this right now as we sing. We're going to sing in Christ alone. And so the band, the the worship team can come up because we're going to celebrate communion and we're going to sing in Christ alone. My hope is found. But listen to the words of this song. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Not in whatever else is more important than Christ. And so let's sing this song in a sense with this radical declaration of self-denial and coming to Jesus for who he is and for what he demands of us. And listen, if you're struggling here, now I get this, this was a hard message. If you're struggling to lay yourself down, you can even pray that God will give you the desire to come to him and to lay it all down. God, I am wrestling here. I don't want to live for you. I'm just being honest, God. I want to live for me. I want to call the shots. I want my plans and goals to be realized. I don't really want to submit my whole life to you because I'm afraid of what you're going to do and what you're going to make me give up and where you're going to lead my life. I don't really want to give you control, God. Maybe you can pray tonight that God would give you the desire to lay your life down. Maybe that's the first step for you. And that's a prayer that God, I think, will answer. When we live for his glory, friends, we find life. This is the paradox. He who wants to save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it and reward forevermore. So we're going to take communion. We're going to celebrate what Jesus has done. And as we take communion, let us sing as a response to Jesus' demands for discipleship. God, help me to lay down my life for your sake and for the gospel. Let me die to self by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me to live for you and for others. Let me fulfill by your strength the greatest commandment, to love you and love my neighbor as myself. Help me to put others' needs and preferences and desires before my own, Philippians 2, in light of Jesus humbling himself. This is all wrapped up in this song, In Christ Alone My Hope Is Found. And just know that if you decide to go all in for Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one enabling you to do this. It's not you in your own strength. And that's why I asked you to pray and ask God for the help even to do so.